Welcome to Sound Lore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. Today, we welcome back IU Assistant Professor Dr. Alicia Lola Jones, who catches up with IU Professor Emerita Dr. Portia Maltzby about her post-retirement research and her ongoing collaborations with Carnegie Hall and the National Museum of African American Music. As they talk about the history of Black music research, Dr. Maltby reflects on her path to IU, and in particular, the history of the IU Soul Review, which she founded and is now celebrating its 50th anniversary. This talk builds upon Dr. Maltby's recent October 2020 presentation given at the IU African American Arts Institute. Along the way, Dr. Jones and Dr. Maltzby celebrate their many inspirations, mentors, and colleagues that influenced their lifelong work in Black musical expression. This is truly a fascinating conversation, one that brings together two of the world's leading scholars in Black music research. All right, I am so excited to have the opportunity to converse with the, I want to call you apostle. I won't do that. You know? <laughs> all right, all right. Bringing all your right. backgrounds together. Listen, listen, I get churchy when I get to talk about Black music, man, mm -hmm. but Dr. Portia Mosby the distinguished Professor Emerita, Laura Bolton, Professor Emerita uh, from the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. How are you and how is retirement going? Oh, I'm, I'm great and retirement is oh, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> I, love getting, I love getting up at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock and just doing what I want to do, although I'm very busy working with the museum. So my days are pretty full and long. I sleep late because I'm up until one or two in the morning. So I've always been a night person. I think primarily because of being in bands all of my life and mm -hmm. never getting home before three and four. And I never got out of that, you know, that groove until little Portia came along and then I had to start getting up early in the morning to get her ready for school and taking her to the bus and all that. But then when she got to be a teenager, then I started my old routine. <laughs> I love it. And you're in Florida now, right? I am in the sunshine state and the city beautiful. <laughs> I love it. You never fail to tell me about that sunshine. I love it. Remind yes. me. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I live on a lake and it's just beautiful to wake, to get up and see this big, huge lake and, and all the greenery. I love that you share it because it keeps when you share it, it keeps before us what the journey can bring to us, which I think uh -huh. is just a wonderful expression of our freedom, being yes. able to retire and retire well. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, continue, and continue to do what you enjoy doing. You know, I'm still engaged in research and projects, the same projects actually I was engaged with while at IU. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so it's nice, that, but I can pick and choose. And I don't I have love to go it. to meetings. That's the mm -hmm. main thing. I don't have to go to meetings. Talk about the dream. Talk yeah, about talk it. Talk about the dream. And I don't mind not teaching these days. I Listen. Love it. I had a wonderful time teaching, but, you know, it gets to the point you, you're ready to do something else. And mm. I was ready to. I enjoy my students. You know, there is a time and day and place for everything in life. And once you accomplish your goal, you know, your mission, what you set out to do, it's time to move on. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had established, I'd done everything I wanted to do, you know, at IU. And, uh, and at that time, in 2013, I said, it's, it's time to move on to something else. Make room for new people like you, the oh, next wow. generation. Make room for the next generation. In 2013, I mean, time has flown. Yes, I it remember, has. I remember when you retired, and you retired with a bang. It, again, yet another illustration of how to finish this journey well and go <laughs> into another chapter. At the beginning of, of our conversation, I joked with you, and I referred to you in the churchy way that we often <laughs> do, especially from the South. Those of us who know church culture, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's a doctor. A bishop, a apostle, whatever. 
But I, I actually thought of Apostle as I reflected on your ability to set up institutions, your ability to found and establish. That really has been one of the ways we speak of you, uh, especially in my cohort of scholars, as someone who exemplifies um, having transferable skills um, and being more than a Renaissance person um, because you're expected to found and establish things. Um, so I really legitimately <laughs> view you in that role within our field. And it puts me in the mind of an Eileen Southern yeah. whose uh, dissertation was deposited 60 years next year, 60 years ago. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. when I say Eileen Southern, what comes mm-hmm. to your mind when you hear the, that name, Eileen Southern? Pioneer, dare to be daring, mm-hmm. uh, innovative, uh, a just phenomenal researcher and scholar. I really enjoyed my time with her. And uh, we, 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 uh, we had a very interesting relationship and respected each other. We brought a very different perspective to the table in, um, in evaluating scholarship, et cetera. And uh, we grew to be very close. She spent a lot of time at IU. She was very much, yeah, she was a part of, an integral part of uh, projects that uh, were established through, we had at that time, a black music center, and uh, that was formed in 1970, actually. And that center generated a lot of scholarship and hosted seminars that brought together black composers and scholars and historians. It was really a very, very exciting time at IU. And that center, it reminds me, that period somewhat reminds me of this phase of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's centered around the, the, the climate emerged from the death of Martin Luther King hmm. in 1968. And yeah. I remember, well, I wasn't here, but the story goes, once I came and participated in some of those seminars, that uh, the, uh, the president wanted to have a... Uh, a memorial, memorial yeah, at the memorial, a memorial um, at the in the IU Auditorium, and asked the School of Music to provide music. Mm-hmm. Then that's when they realized the librarian at the time they came to him for you know scores of what shall we consider. That's when they realized they really had nothing related to black music. You know, wow. the composers and they, were, they had a quartet or something, some string ensemble that was going to perform. And, and the librarian knew some people, some composers, but that's when the realization, there is a huge void here in our collection and in the way we instruct or expose our students. Uh, and that is we're missing the African-American component of musical expression. And that wow. ultimately led to the... Uh, coming together, putting together the Black Music Committee. I wasn't here then, this is in 1968, 1969. And, uh, but I became aware of the symposiums, my being in Black music. I'm always looking for where is Black music research going on? What are, what are the activities? And, uh, and that led me to participate, but to, to come to the seminars in IU. I think my advisor was the one, Lois Anderson, uh, that saw an advertisement or something about it and told me, she said, I think this is where you want to attend this. And that's how I somewhat became introduced to IU. That was, I was still a graduate student. Uh, that, that must have been 1969. I think 1969 was the first one. I was a graduate student and uh, at Wisconsin. But my advisor, Dr. Anderson, was always looking out for uh, programs and, and seminars or whatever that she felt I could benefit from. And uh, she was absolutely right. So that's how this sort of emerged you know, at IU, the, um, the interest in black music. And then of course, I always had that interest. And, uh, 
And so you was a pioneer, really, in, the, uh, in, in establishing our studies in Black music, although initially their focus was on composers. So I got to meet all of these great composers from Hale Smith, Ollie Wilson. What? Uh, oh, yeah, they are all, he, these seminars, the first set of seminars centered around classical music, trying to identify Black composers, scores that could be taught and collected and deposited in the library. And uh, so this is long, this is before Sam Floyd came along a little later at Fisk, but sort of a similar idea. Mm. But uh, then they, the, the, uh, the School of Music developed a, a Black Music Center, and it was totally devoted to collection, archival research, research programs, everything bringing together the actual artists and composers, the musicians, and hearing their, them tell their stories. And, and that ultimately led to, many years later, a book called The Black Composer Speaks. So I Eileen know that Southern, book. Okay. okay. Well, Eileen Southern was very much a part of that, the shaping of that book. Isn't and, it, uh, the ne- is it the Negro Composer Speaks? No, um, it's The Black Composer Speaks. Okay. Like I'm here's Chris, a black composer speaks. And she helped develop an outline because I remember for lunch she always wanted tuna and onions. <laughs> she had a, a ritual at lunchtime. And so she was here, she was on campus. Um, I forget how many, but several you know, weeks she stayed and that was very so watching her work was very interesting. And, wow. And she got up early, was there and had everything around her developing and developing outline or for that. Um, wow. And that's when I also met Undine Smith Moore. I mean, she was wonderful, a wonderful woman. She received the great a, composer, a Undine. great composer, Undine mm. Smith Moore. She received an honorary doctorate from IU School of Music. Mm. So, you know, those days were exciting. And Indiana was, I have to say, at the forefront, and I think led largely by, with David Baker. And there are two or three liberal faculty members, Robert Klopman, and there's a musicologist, Austin, who was his name? I can't remember him. But anyway, they had a great interest in African-American music, as did uh, George Gerber. He was a percussionist, uh, did Latin American, you know. So they ended up being, when I came to IU, they ended up being very supportive of my efforts. And I remember the first seminar centered around composers. The second seminar, the next summer, uh, incorporated other genres of music. So Thomas Dorsey was here. So a lot of the pioneers in all of these areas of that period were on campus. And uh, in the center collected lots of interviews with these individuals and uh, scores and whatever all they had. And then they ended up being a part of different programs of different projects sponsored by the, the Black Music Center. And uh, I remember them, uh, they commissioned T.J. Anderson to write an opera because they wanted to have a Black opera performed. And I think the only one that they knew in existence were tremendous. And I'm not sure if they even knew that at the time or there was a full score or something. But nevertheless, it led to this interest led to the a commission of an opera by a black composer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and TJ came to campus at a certain point was he, once he you know, did a sketch of it and began to work with the students in the school about it. And they produced it. It was a part of the, uh, um, the, one of the opera series. I appreciate what, what you just shared, how it illustrates immediately two important aspects of Black music research, which is number one, this is the time frame where we're seeing the emergence of African-American studies in the mm-hmm. academy. Right. This is the nadirs of it. And 10 years out from Southern depositing her dissertation you are interacting with her and through that interaction um, it illustrates how as we study black music research and its historiography we really need to attend to black women's lives Mm -hmm. Um, not just their lives through publication but also their lives in the doing of the research and in the pedagogy Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of Black women have been the teachers of those who went on to publish article and book-length works. Mm -hmm. And your career in particular as a practitioner 
composer, musician, um, administrator, uh, to, to reduce it simply to publication is not to understand mm -hmm. the doing of the research. I think what you, you give us is very, very important as we follow Black women's lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. We, we, we were having fun. I, you know, I grew up with, well, Bernice was older than me, and but uh -huh. Bernice Regan, you know, all of those. Yeah. I, came, I came along at the right time, I guess, in life and the exciting moments in, in African-American history uh, where we were coming together from all walks of life and in looking at programming, putting together institutions, uh, organizations to celebrate Black music and Black culture. And of course, I'm in the middle of the Black power movement, the demand for Black studies, and I mean, at Wisconsin. So I, I'm transferring from Wisconsin to Indiana within the same climate mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. for recognizing black pres the Black presence in this country and their mm -hmm. cultural out put mm -hmm. and broad, and broad, uh, and broad um, contributions mm -hmm. to the academy, what we could bring to the academy and, and then otherwise. And I appreciate that you mentioned how your dissertation advisor, who we always shout out, Dr. Lois Anderson, mm -hmm. how she was, uh, she had her ear to the ground in terms of a broader network to support you as a student um, uh, who had in many ways, uncommon skills uh, mm -hmm. as an African-American woman of that particular time. Um, and so I, I want to affirm that aspect of, of your story. And then, of course, you just dropped, you know, Dr. Bernice Johnson-Regan's name, just like, you know, you know, it's every day another legend uh, to, to be inspired by and to mm -hmm. observe. Um, what a charmed life. And it was great. <laughs> yeah. But you know, we didn't life. know we, we didn't know that you know these productions would lay the foundation for much of uh, for much of the future. We didn't know that. We were just, we saw what needed to be done. We were in there like a team. You know, I've always been a collaborative person in working with people and teams. I I think I got that grew up as a twin, so I've never been a solo type person. I always loved mm -hmm. exchanges and debating ideas and surrounding myself with smart people and and from all walks of life and. And that's what I really, you know, enjoyed about working with Bernice and her programs out of Smithsonian History of uh, American Music, History of American History, specifically the program in Black American culture. And uh, and again, you know, we were on the ground working together, generating ideas together. She turned over the music to me. And she says, Portia, I want you here developing the the, uh, the secular music component of of what I'm doing with freedom songs and religious music. Wow. And that was her focus, you know, the civil rights and songs, music of the civil rights period and, and, and trying to document, which was ahead of her time, mm -hmm. religious music, gospel music, all facets of that tradition, which led to this massive, you know, NPR series and, and of course, uh, the record, the record series that accompanied that. So she had always had uh, ideas, but she loved debating ideas, sitting down with all of us and and uh, and just throwing out, this is what I want to do. What do you think? What direction shall we take? So everything we did was very collaborative uh, over mm -hmm. the, over the years, and mm -hmm. and then and we got ideas from each other. Because mm -hmm. once I did, I forget which program it was. She says, "Okay, I always want you to do the the secular part to whether it's gospel quartets or the Roberta Martin program or this or that. Because there is that linkage between the sacred and secular, and I always want to have those." parts, um, those, those intersections exposed. Mm -hmm. And that's literally what I did. I always, that's why I was becoming more and more engrossed in popular music. Mm -hmm. and I was always interested in it, but I never thought about it within the context of these other genres in, in very specific ways. And, and that, 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 that came out of uh, generating ideas and you're, you're bouncing off each other and then you're absorbing and then all of a sudden you come up with something very creative and innovative. Mm -hmm. and she, was, she was very good. So I really enjoyed working with her. We were, in fact, there were several, let's see, Bill Wiggins, Professor Wiggins and myself, and there was another person. Because I remember her saying, because most of the black professors at that time, we were among the first wave at, and we were at IU. 
Mm-hmm. And because I remember she said, she said to me, she said, you know, Portia, I get nervous when all of you come from IU on the same plane. If <laughs> something happens to that plane, then all my resources are gone. She my said, goodness. She said, it made me feel better if you all would come on different flights. <laughs> my goodness. She was serious. She was serious about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we, we, we grew up together, this first cohort of, let's say, black faculty, you know, in numbers. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we just, we did a lot together and we supported each other. And I think one of the reasons for our successes is that we all began in Afro-M departments. Hmm. I think that made a huge difference. We didn't have to fight the traditional departments in terms of expanding that understanding and the understanding the relevance mm-hmm. of our research. Mm-hmm. And then we all came together you know, in DC. So how are you going to not acknowledge the influence of Smithsonian Institution? You can't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think all of that helped move us along in, in terms of the acceptability. And I know it did for me in the area of popular music. When I produced that program for them, a weekend symposium on black popular music, chose early period that was stable so it wouldn't be considered something that's so unstable as the manufacturing of record companies, blah, blah, blah. This was, the people, this was over. The era had ended, 1945 to 1955. And that led to really opening some doors. But I couldn't have done it outside of Smithsonian. Hmm. Smithsonian did it. That There must be some validity to this topic. Hmm. Hmm. And that's what she helped do. She helped bring validity to the study of a number of topics, as did the Folk Life Center in terms of Black American cultural expression, you know, beyond the music, dance and mm-hmm. all of that, art, artistic, all artistic expression. So that, that institution under her leadership with the pro, within the program of Black American culture definitely led to uh, open doors for a lot of scholars who would not have had the same kind of opportunities and validation Mm. that the Smithsonian brought. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I um, produced that program on rhythm and blues that encompassed not only the artists, but different aspects of the music industry from promotion, booking agencies, you know, looking, looking at radio personalities, looking at all of the pieces that came together to help make bring African-American popular music, you know, from the underground into the, the, the broader community over time. Mm-hmm. And how, and what was the process for the production of this music and how, how it intersected and, and who helped bring it into the, the broader community. And it sat at the center of community life. Mm-hmm. So we looked at all of that. And mm-hmm. the press came from all over Europe, I was on the, the front page of the art section of the New York Times. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was neat. So now when I die, I can be in the New York Times because if you I love it, it. My understanding of it, my understanding of it uh, if you cover some major, then you, you can have an obit in the New, in York, the New Times. York Times. But anyway, but anyway, that's just a side note. Yeah. I'm assuming it still applies. Yeah, no, I mean, it it was just exciting time. Even in even Mm -hmm. in you thinking about that, honestly, you cannot. I I just think a competent uh, exploration of the foundations of black music research, you cannot do without a look at Southern, a look at Bernice Johnson Regan, a look at uh, Mm -hmm. Portia Maltzby, among other women. Uh, But when I think of Reagan in particular, Regan, in particular, her recordings, the way that she used recording of anywhere from Mother Fannie Lou Hamer to the congregations in the South, her use of recording and capturing these materials is still uh, a learning tool to this day. And it wasn't just the monograph. It was capturing the oral traditions and the orality of our culture. You know, that you mentioned the oral traditions. Now, this is something that was really uh, uh, interesting uh, progression for NPR. So when Bernice was going to uh, produce his radio series on the religious music, um, following NPR's format, you know, you have a script, you know, like a narrator. 
She says, no, no, no. She says, this comes from an oral tradition. We cannot have a script and a narrative. It's about storytelling. She was big on that. And if you listen to that series, that broke, I mean, it, we had to stop, you know, for a minute to, for NPR to regroup, to understand the approach that she wanted to take and was going to be the only approach she would agree to. And it was, if you listen to that series, it's like storytelling. It is not scripted. She's up there telling you her stories and bringing it into play. And, and, if you, and, and the whole series captures exactly what you said, the oral tradition. And that, that mm. was her point. The music emerges from an oral tradition. We cannot present it in any other way. Oh, this is good. How it's introduced. So if you listen to that series, you can, that orality is so much at the center. And again, so you think about, you know, staying true to your culture. Yes, yes. It helps rather than being, rather than have your culture um, be redefined in its presentation by an existing institution whose format is based on another culture. Yes, you know, yes. Heritage. Yes. And then that, that I have to give her a lot of credit for much of changes that took place in Washington and in the various institutions, you know, like NPR. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it just opened, you know, I worked together, me, our meaning my generational, you know, scholars that came together with uh, and, under the umbrella of the Smithsonian program, black programs in black American culture, uh, had a huge impact on on how the music and how the music and culture was beginning to be talked about, written about, and accepted. Right. Right. Now, if I were in a, in a traditional music department, I mean, you know, fully at that time, no way, no way could they understand. Now, now, you know, everybody's gravitating towards it. And I, I will remember, I remember so well how a lot of the literary scholars, not just at IU, but all over other, you know, large predominant white institutions were writing and publishing and, and the traditional journals weren't ready for this black perspective on literature. And, and that's when the, you know, the various journals, black journals were being created. And, and I remember that a lot of those departments did not want to accept those journals as being a tier one or whatever for the purpose of promote tenure and promotion. And, and it's so interesting now, fast forward the 30, 40 years, uh, 50 or however many it's been. Now, the white scholars in these departments are quoting those people from those journals, the same people who were denied access to mainstream journals. Now, that's one advantage I really had in being in ethnomusicology. I did not have the same, I did not have the struggles my colleagues had in other departments regarding publication or topics or whatever, because just the nature of the field, you know, scholarship had to be good, but the nature of the field that I could write about, and you can't tell me I can't write about, it's not valid black culture. Now, popular music was a different story, but that became okay after the Smithsonian. I couldn't get a grant at all to support my research prior, but after that program, I got grants Mm. up the wazoo. That's key. Yeah, got to have the key. And then think about it now. In our society, more more than 50% of the papers are on popular music, some aspect of it. Mm. But that didn't happen at that time. You know, I was the first one kind of pushing that, you know, in a direction. And, uh, but the Smithsonian made it possible for me to be recognized for what I was doing. Wow. Wow. I, you know, even as I think of your work on Africanisms, for example, and I take seriously the project of oral transmission, there, it, to me, in, in my estimation, there is no way you can talk about Black music research as, as, as simply a written tradition, even in how we've had to capture our tradition through recordings, through documentaries that you've championed, or through the performance of it. The to do black music is to be relational, to be mm-hmm. communal, and mm-hmm. to be oral. And so now, as I enter into the legacy that you and Dr. Burnham and all of the brilliant minds that have come before me, um, th- that legacy that you all have set, a part of what I think is important to impress upon the students is that we must cite what has been said with the same sort of authority as what we have read. So lectures 
um, pedagogical interactions are just as legitimate as what has been in a journal or a monograph, largely because we as Black people, Black women, have been in the classrooms forming these folks who have had the luxury to get the grant, um, to, to take the time to do these book-length sorts of explorations, if we really understand the timelines and levels of access um, and legibility or audibility in the field. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, as you do your practicing, I'm sure you get the question I'm always getting, which is, how, how can I authentically do the music? How can I authentically do the gospel or the soul or the jazz? And to me, the number one thing is you got to be in relationship with somebody. Mm -hmm. If you're not in relationship with a practitioner, you're not going, you, you don't know the culture. You don't know the etiquette, let alone mm -hmm. the groove. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Precisely. You have to be an insider in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so that, that is a part of the foundation, I think, of understanding your impact through the Soul Review. Um, you, as a, a culture bearer of the oral transmission, you emerging during this time of, of African-American studies being, being uh, sought after, um, but then also administrators being willing to invest, um, being willing to think with talented individuals um, to create institutional support. Uh, and the IU Soul Review remains uh, one of the only university credit-bearing African-American popular music ensembles in the country. Yeah. I mean, for some, that is, uh, it stands on its own and, and definitely should be recognized as an accomplishment. It also tells us that there's a lot of work we need to do in the U.S. to recognize our homegrown traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? No, I agree. I agree. And it took, you know, I think as African-American communities, we, we take for granted what we do. You know, we don't know what we do is special. Our religious expressions, music, or, you know, preaching otherwise, just in church services, or our performance of popular music. We, we just do it. We just create. And, uh, and we're, it's within our culture. And we, we take it for granted. But that's when I saw, I said, okay, I'm studying all these other things, but I'm not seeing much happening with the validation of African-American expressions. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that, that led to, you know, really being understanding how, if, again, it, how, how can we do this? How can we make this happen? How can we bring all of these expressions together in a way that produces, that you have the scholarship interacting with your creativity? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I have said earlier, the Soul Review ended up being, a, I didn't realize it at the time, but it really was. It was a lab for my research with, with regard to aesthetics, wow. aesthetics of the tradition, with performance, understanding performance, understanding the cultural relationship between artists and audiences and all of that. And because like in, in, at the Apollo Theater, if you didn't get across to the audience, you would boo it off the stage. And yes. Somehow they did not relate to you. But the same thing is true in, in performances. If these artists, or when I saw James Brown, I, you know, I, like I said earlier, I really studied James Brown. He was so fascinating to me. And then I, and then I wanted to say, man, I just loved what I saw, what I heard, all of these things. As a young kid, these things were resonating with me. I didn't understand the total meaning until later when I began to study this. And then I realized what has shaped my understanding, you know, the music, and it goes back to your point, within the culture itself. I took what I understood within the culture, it became me, like you said, we're culture barriers. Mm -hmm. And in culture, people have to understand it's not innate, it's learned. You know, yeah. we see each other doing it. We, we imitate in church. You see little kids moving around, looking at their parents and other people, and they're moving too. They don't always know what it means, mm -hmm. but then they become a part of that, that, that expression mm -hmm. that continues as they get older. Mm -hmm. because it's their reference. It's the only reference they have. Mm -hmm. So with, with the Soul Review, it, uh, and I realized as I got older and I started analyzing all of this, I said, this is so unique. And I realized that it needed to be studied, documented, written about, and interpreted. It needed to be interpreted within the other 
kind of, you know, within the broader concept of music creativity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as having his own set of guidelines and aesthetic priorities. And- so as you were sought after, pretty much, I know you wouldn't say it, but I'm here to tell it. Pretty much as a female uh, prodigy, um, uh, a person who was really gifted in the tradition, multi-genre in terms of your ability, um, what was it like to have been courted to an institution, a a Big Ten institution like IU, uh, where in many ways there were many men who thought that they were supposed to have been in that position? I think it was again um, <clears throat> from the from the outside. It looked easy, or the thought of oh, popular music, oh, I can do that. But without understanding the approach that I was going to be taking to the performance of popular music and ultimately the study of it. Um, so, but you know, I didn't really think about gender, and I think <laughs> because I grew up in a male environment. I had brothers that I grew up with, grew up in two African-American neighborhoods, and I was pretty much the only girl on the street. And, and uh, then in my current neighborhood, you know, where I, when we moved, like same thing, very few, there are a couple of girls, they were younger, but in terms of my peer group, there are all these men, even they come over, you okay, we, we come, we, we, what you need, what you need us to do? You know, so I've always been, in, in, a, in a male environment, and I was always very comfortable in that environment. And then, of course, having bands from college, you know, I led them. The, all the performers, the musicians, the, let's say instrumentalists were men. The singers were female, all, yeah, mostly female, and it's up in Wisconsin, I had a female and a male singer. So largely, you know, I'm in the company of males all the time. I became accustomed to their language style, their, their conversational style. I jump in the mail and say, oh, no, 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 back it this up. This is not going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, or, you know, your way of thinking is warped. And, and so they spoke freely you know, about, and, and I think even it's through my life, you know, that somehow I just had that natural relationship with men. I, I don't know. I think it's just growing up with them. But in terms of just my broader world, there was largely men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it didn't phase me, to be honest, uh, when I was selected to, to you know, develop the ensemble. And even though there were men in the music school uh, who felt I should do it, but what, what, what people were not aware of was Herman's vision for this. This is going to be long term. It was going to be institutionalized within the curriculum, within the university. And he was very strategic in understanding the kind of the faculty that would be needed to ensure the longevity of these ensembles. That's why we're still the only one in the country to be long-term, not to satisfy a movement or a set of demands to just quickly do something like many schools did. Um, they, uh, I mean, with the schools, when they tried to do it, they had uh, band directors from high schools to come over on the weekends and try to put it together or whatever. Because I remember there are two or three schools that tried to do it, but they didn't because I was trying, I was being recruited by those same schools mm-hmm. to, uh, to do the same thing. They said, we want you to do here what you, what you did at IU. And I said, my mother always said to me, she says, honey, know when your pastor is green. You, mm. you don't have to look for greener pastures because it's, they're not going to be. No, when you mm-hmm. have when it's, when you, and, and so I, that, that's why I was at IU all those years. Mm-hmm. I had many job offers, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the period of my career. But I realized I didn't have to explore, look for greener pastures. I had them headed at IU, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it's knowing, it's knowing when you, when you, you're able to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And then it was also longevity, having um, knowing people, you know being an assistant professor with those who later became deans and provosts and whatever, whatever, VPs. And, and that gave me, we knew each other. So mm-hmm. it allowed me a greater access. But if I jumped around, you're not going to have that same kind of relationship building opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
that that's why it, it, it worked for me. I had the support and I, I, I you know, my timing was right. You know, I came into the university when there was a, a male figure, Dr. Herman Hudson, who was bigger than life hmm. and uh, had real, real vision. I mean, that, to watch that man work. And I have to say, I learned a lot from him. Him and my older brother, I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, my older brother was non-traditional. He's his MD and psychiatrist and and, and his peers thought his ideas were out there. They thought he was out there. <laughs> and uh, his, his, his ideas ended up being the basis for a lot of the, the research that proved to be effective. Mm-hmm. And, and he's the one that encouraged me when, when I expressed my interest in black music. I say, well, it's not a part, but it's not a part of the study. And then his, his response to me was, make it a part of the study. Mm. That's the thing, make it a part of the study. Hmm. And I was fortunate to have an advisor who allowed that to happen mm-hmm. and supported it. Uh, like in my undergraduate education, I mean, none. I mean, who we were miles apart culturally now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then she learned to appreciate what, what I was doing. And we had a wonderful relationship until her, until her death. She moved mountains and people accused her of catering to me when she allowed me to, let's say, do... Uh, things like light up the whole administration building with sound on the weekends and 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 they they, they weren't accustomed to that. Hmm. So the, the point is I was fortunate along the way and I don't know, I guess I was just led there. I never dreamed that I would be doing all the things that I ended up doing or being put in these situations where I'm surrounded by others, like you know minded people. Never thought about all of that. But somehow my path, you know, my direction, I just followed where it looks felt like I should go. Mm-hmm. And going right there, and it's, I've never been out in the, mid, in the Midwest in Kansas. And boy, you talk about bear coming from Florida. That was an experience. Mm-hmm. Never experienced cold until I got there. Never experienced Catholicism, nuns and priests and all the white people. Never, never, never. But it was so amazing. It was at that school that my, that foundation for what I ultimately would end up doing was planted. Hmm. You know, she allowed me, and she was learning about it too. In the end, she wanted to go to one island southern seminars. Hmm. She says, I was in Indiana by this time, and she, she got, she says, you know, I've developed this interest in black music, and I would like to attend one of her seminars. But my point is, I don't know what it was. Somehow I, I just ended up in situations where my unconventional, a non-conventional interests was supported in, in multiple ways that was important. Mm-hmm. And then had I not been at that school, I would not have ended up at the University of Wisconsin. Now that, that's mm-hmm. an interesting story. Mm-hmm. One of the priests who was also on the music faculty, he attended the University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I was going to Cornell. I had a fellowship and everything to Cornell. Hmm. And he he ended he asked me it was in April or something like that March or April I was getting ready to graduate and not you know and uh, I was taking my we had to have comprehensive exams there so my school to graduate we had to make an equivalent of GRE acceptance for graduate school and we had comprehensive exams so anyone going on to graduate school you're already prepared for comprehensive exams like me in music mm-hmm. so when I took hmm. the exams at University of Wisconsin. I was the only one that passed everything. Now, how many students go into schools of music, master's program, and pass all of the entrance exams? Because they're going to make you take theory or something or something. But that was my strong points. My strong points were in the areas of those exams. Mm-hmm. Theory and composition and all of that. It was not about, there's some music history, but those exams were not as much about music history as they were about theory. Mm-hmm. And But I was strong in music history. So... It's happened to me one day. He says, Porsche, I've been thinking about you. And I wanted to just find out what are your future plans. And I said, I'm told I'm going to Cornell. He says, you know, have you ever thought about the University of Wisconsin? And I said, no. He says, I think you should think about that school. And, uh, and then he, that's when he told me he had gotten his degree there. He says, the faculty are liberal. And, and I think given your, he knew me very well, your personality, your interests, and your, you know, like you say, your non-conventional non uh, interests that I think you would find a great reception at the University of Wisconsin. 
And then I didn't, I didn't think much about it. And I thought, but it just so happened that that's where my brother was on the faculty in the medical school. Oh, wow. The University of Wisconsin. Wow. So I called him up. He was 15 years old. So I called him up and I told him the scenario. So once again, here he is. I said, but I haven't, I called him Junior. He's named after my father. So we called him Juju growing up. And then Juniors, we got to be older. And, uh, and I, he said, he always called me Dabe. He said, Dabe, he said, it's not going to hurt you to come here for a summer. He said, what are you going to do? Anyway, you can go to the Cornell, you're not going to go this summer. So why don't you just come here and try it out, take some classes. I say, what I have another play. He said, you don't have to apply for classes for the summer. I mean, he was always on it. So he, he encouraged me to go. I said, okay. He said, at least try. If you don't like it, go on the Cornell. Hmm. And I did. So something took, took me there. And boy, I fell in love. That summer, I enrolled in two classes. And then that's when I thought, wow, this is pretty neat. I kind of like this. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it met in two classes were theory-based courses. Mm -hmm. And I was studying with the, the, the chair of the, the composition department. He taught the class. And, and I, in, by midterm summer, I said, hmm, I think I want to do this. And, and so I went to speak with the chair of the department. He was a well-known theorist and at the time of that, of that period. And uh, he says, well, let me, let me check around. And I told him I had a full fellowship at Cornell. And uh, he says, well, why don't you come back? Uh, um, and I forget how many weeks, but as it turned out, those, those weeks, by that time, I would have taken midterms, summer midterms. And then and the GRE was being, not the GRE, the, uh, the interest exams were being offered. So I did that. And then so that's what he wanted to see the outcome. He said, something. yeah, he said, we can, we can do something for you. As it turns out, my instructor wanted me to be his AI teaching assistant for the honors theory class. I love it. Yeah. And so and then, then, then meanwhile, the chair had come up with a, a fellowship. I mean, a fellowship, it was based on, I forget what, what, who, who was funding it, but nevertheless, the idea was that whatever this institution was within the, the bigger department, the bigger sphere of education, wanted to help facilitate faculties getting PhDs without coming summer, 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 and dragging it out over four or five years. So mm -hmm. I happened to come along at that time, mm -hmm. and now the emphasis is on how can we help facilitate faculty staying two or three years or two years to complete a degree. Mm -hmm. Although I'm going for master's, but nevertheless, same, same idea. And so that's what I ended up with. So I had the teaching money, then I had this other money. Mm -hmm. and then, of course, I founded a band there, of course, in the Soul Syndicate. So I came to Indiana with a bank account because I made so much money. I love it. Let's say, <laughs> anybody who knows me knows I love to talk about money. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, it was, it was fun. So, so that's kind of my, my journey. The bottom line was I, I just listened. You know, I, I was not opposed to I, I knew I knew nothing. You know, I knew nothing about where I was going. I was open to whatever people, advice or comments someone had. And I, you know, thought about them. I followed up and uh, I ended up in the right places with the right people. Then I go to Indiana, to uh, Wisconsin, and there's Lois Anderson. Hmm. And then there are the two, in my master's program, the two men who happened to have had an interest in black music. In the master's program, I like did a theory emphasis. It was musicology, but I, my degree really should be in theory because I took mm -hmm. all those courses that counted for musicology and took the required musicology courses, and that was it. So I finished my master's in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. that, that was unheard of for a music school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I had no deficiencies, mm -hmm. and that allowed me to just move very quickly. Hmm. I had no deficiencies. You better say that loud. I, love <laughs> I had no deficiencies. <laughs> uh, you know, so I was, but you know, I didn't realize, again, you know, I'm naive. I didn't realize that you typically would have deficiencies. That was later <laughs> that I figured all this out in my classmates. No one had, they said, you didn't have to take these courses? No, mainly because I had just passed a comprehensive exam on the same thing to graduate from undergraduate school. So that's why it was just not an issue. A lot of this was effortless. Hmm. And so I so I didn't realize, you know, I was doing all of these things. I didn't realize they, they were end up being sort of phenomenal later. I just did follow my passion, follow my heart, and followed the advice of people who I knew knew far more than I knew about any, hmm. anything. So I think that was the key for me, being willing to listen and just do without questioning why this, why that. I know I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So then from there, then I'm going into, then here's Herman Hudson coming along later. And then David Baker, who I met, ironically, see again. Lois Anderson referring me to these seminars in the summer. And that's how IU became familiar with me. Now, Herman Hudson is not in the picture at this time. He just took it through the music. And that's when I met Eileen Southern and all these other, you know, famous composers, Eileen Smith Moore, you know, you down the line, everybody. Mm. And then they, then they formed a composer. I forget what it was called. It was they had their own organization. Then I started going to that organization. Then they asked me to give a paper looking at creativity across the board in terms of the popular music. Because I see what you're doing is not, not that different from what uh, other people do in um, written traditions. So I have a very good relationship with a number of the composers. And taught, of course, in fact, uh, the, the music of black composers. Oh, really? Yeah, so so that became, that, I did that through music school. That was part of that curriculum in, uh, that we developed. But anyway, so that that's kind of my, my journey from where I ended up being, and then ultimately IU, and then ultimately in a situation that where my interest was complemented the interests of the administration in that unit. Mm-hmm. And so it worked very well for me. Mm-hmm. And then I did what I needed to do for the School of Music. And then, so it was just a perfect fit. Yeah. And then I had David Baker, who was, you know, a, very, a great supporter of my work. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's all I needed. <laughs> I didn't need to worry about anybody else, whether they understood it or agreed with it. It didn't matter to me. I love it. I absolutely love it. Soundlor is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and Some Other Clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.